this past Thursday, I had an opportunity to have a conversation with a man uh, who told me a story, and part of his story was that he had was uh, the beneficiary of an arranged marriage. And what that means is that his mother and father met with the mother and father of his wife, and they gathered together and decided that they would be married. The first day he met his wife was the day he put a ring on her finger. And of course, it was very different uh, from my own experience and many of ours, but we also know that that happens all throughout the world. And I was struck by the joy this man found in his wife, uh, the love, uh, the blessing of that, of his relationship that he expressed, but also the joy and the uh, thankfulness that he had about his own mother and father. Uh, and I guess the lesson here is not to, to highlight arranged marriages, right? But actually to say um, that we can learn a lot from mothers and fathers. And today we've heard from two, Joseph in the Advent reading and Mary, uh, which we're about to read now. And we can learn a lot about them. And so let me in, uh, encourage you uh, to tune your ears to listen to these parents in the faith. And this is, this is, uh, just turn the page. This is Mary's, what's called Mary's song from the book of Luke. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. That's the word of the Lord. Let me, thanks be to God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless us with your presence? Would you speak to us through this text? Would you inform our lives uh, in this city? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's devotional called God in the Manger, he addresses what I think is a, a big problem that all of us face, and that is, is the human dilemma of Christmas, and really our inability to celebrate it fully, to live into it authentically, or to use his language, to celebrate Christmas correctly. And that's the title for us today, Who Among Us Can Celebrate Christmas Correctly? And I the answer is not Christians. Uh, it is a question for every person, whether you consider yourself a spiritual person, not spiritual person, a Christian, not Christian. Bonhoeffer himself is a pastor, he's a theologian, and he recognizes in his own heart, in his own community, that when it comes to Christmas, there's a real struggle to, to enter into it, to celebrate it truthfully, authentically, to do it correctly. Now, if you're visiting New York, for the first time, or you, you know, you've been around for a long time, you're returning. You come into New York and you say, New York knows how to do Christmas. And in so many ways, it's so true. I love New York when it dresses up for Christmas. 
it is in an even more magical place if we can possibly imagine. And so to hear this idea, right, like how do you celebrate Christmas correctly is, could be a challenge, right? You know, who are you to say whether we do this correctly or not? We do this of our own choosing, we, we, so on and so forth. But it's not for me to say. But it's helpful for us to go back to the people that experienced Christmas for the very first time and who actually help us understand and has, in a sense, given us Christmas and to hear what they experienced for themselves, what they learned, to ground us in a, in a reality uh, that's found here in the scriptures. <clears throat> and so I think, you know, the, the thesis statement for us today is that when we think about Christmas and we want to celebrate it correctly, Mary shows us something really helpful. She's, Mary shows us how to celebrate Christmas correctly because she celebrates the coming of Christ. She celebrates Christmas correctly because she celebrates the coming of Christ. So we think about Christ, Christians do, as this incredible gift to the world, right? So let's ask three questions about this particular gift through this song that we have here uh, from Mary herself. Let's ask, why did Mary celebrate Christmas at all? Why did the first celebration of, what did the first celebration of Christmas look like? And then how can we celebrate Christ's coming today, okay? So first, why did Mary celebrate Christmas at all? It's actually a, a good question. Um, it would make sense that she would not celebrate Christmas. Remember Mary's story, Christmas comes to Mary uh, through an unexpected pregnancy. And most times and in most situations throughout the world, when an unexpected pregnancy occurs, there is very little celebration, and it's a, but there is a lot of panic. There's a lot of despair. And so it would make absolute sense for this young woman to not celebrate Christmas, if you will. Now, just real quick, you know, when we talk about unexpected pregnancies, if you've been at this church for a while, then you know that we do not talk about that in terms of uh, leanings to the right or to the left politically but we talk about it in terms of people in need, people who are, have, are now in a situation in which there is tremendous, tremendous anxiety and uh, fear, in which they're experiencing a lot of pressure within and pressure without. And therefore, we love to come alongside people who are in situations like that and love them no matter what decisions they make. And that's the calling of a Christian uh, I believe, um, when it comes to people experiencing unexpected pregnancies and transitioning to Mary, there's never been a more unexpected pregnancy than hers. Never. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, never, never a more unexpected pregnancy and never will be a more unexpected pregnancy. The child that was alive in her womb was conceived by God. Uh, and this is uh, just a few short verses earlier, we get a hint of all that that actually means. Um, in verse 28, it says, the angel went to her, this is the angel Gabriel, and this is the section from which this song comes, comes forth. And the angel says, greetings you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and 
you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so to hear that, that kind of high theology, that kind of cosmic understanding that's, uh, you know, promised to be there, you know, as we know the story more fully in the manger, you might think, wow, it's smooth sailing for Mary. She's giving birth to a king, the king, and yet it's just the opposite. It's not smooth sailing at all. Uh, remember, we know this story well, but it's always good to ground these texts that we know so well in reality, Mary is 13, 14, 15. She's young. She's betrothed to Joseph, who probably is not that much older. Now, betrothed is a word that we don't really use that much anymore, but what it means is basically he's her fiancé. But in that day, fiancé legally, was legally binding. So Joseph's mother and father came together with Mary's mother and father. And there may have been some connection between them, but most likely there was an arrangement there. And part of that arrangement was one of financial security, most likely. And so for them to be coming together was to say, we're projecting forward into the future, not just about you know, Mary and Joseph as some kind of ancient Near Eastern Romeo and Juliet. No, we're coming together to survive. They're families of integrity, and we're going to come together and, and survive. And our finances are, are now interwoven in a legal way. Therefore, when, when an unexpected pregnancy occurs, that is not just a scandal. It's not just shameful, morally shameful. It now has legal implications. And therefore, uh, Mary could be arrested for, I don't know, you know, kind of like embezzlement or robbery or something like that, right? So it's an incredibly difficult situation that she finds herself in. So it would make sense that if she gets this news, that she's not going to celebrate at all. But she does. Despite the fact that as she thinks into the future, she knows in keeping this child, she will be forever a source of gossip. In keeping this child, that there will always be doubt about her character and her son. She uh, celebrates knowing that she'll often feel and be excluded. She rejoices uh, knowing the fact that she could lose everything. But what does she say? The first verse is, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so what we learn there is that the power of God is such that even in this situation, that Mary is not defined by her circumstances, but she is defined by uh, what God thinks of her. She is not uh, just in a seasonal predicament, but it actually goes even further, deeper down, that there is a miracle here for someone who has, I, if she's anything like you and I, and I believe she is, 
that she's been struggling with something all of her life, and that is separation from God. And I say that because this is an Advent passage. In many ways, Mary is the ultimate Advent figure. Because like all of us, she's longed. She's been excluded. She's been oppressed. You know, maybe she felt uh, excluded in her own culture. Maybe she felt separated internally in every way that you and I might feel. She's experienced this too. And yet God comes to her and addresses her longing in the most profound way. He unites himself to her. And that's why she doesn't just say, I'm so thankful to have a baby. I'm so thankful you chose me. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My Savior. Why did Mary celebrate Christmas at all? Because she knew that love itself was growing inside of her, for her, and for the world. And so we hear ideas like this and passages like this, and in many ways, I just want to ask myself, why do I make Christmas into something other than just what it is? And I think the answer is, is because we long. We long to be blessed. We long to know God's favor. Every man should long to experience what Mary has experienced. Every man, woman, and child should in some sense, long to, to be united to God, not in terms of being pregnant, and in terms of, you know, united to God in such a way, like Mary. So how do you know if you celebrated Christmas correctly? Well, if you say these words, if at Christmas you utter the same kind of sentiment, you feel the same kind of sentiment, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's how you celebrate Christmas correctly. You rejoice. Now, you might be saying, I'm, I'm not ready for that, or I've been there, and I'm, I'm not sure. And I understand all of that very well, but let me just nudge you a little bit, and let's just think, what is at the top of our Christmas list? What's the one thing that you think you need so greatly? And when you receive it on Christmas, and I'm not trying to ruin your Christmas, but if you don't say these words based on what you've received, you're shooting too low. There's so much more for us to be received at Christmas. Lewis says we are content to play in mud puddles when a day at the beach, day at the shore is what's offered to us. Is that how we live and respond when it comes to Christmas? You may get everything you want, but it's not actually, but maybe it's not actually what you need. Mary, despite many challenges, celebrates Christmas from her soul because she receives what she truly needs. So, that's why she celebrates Christmas. But what does celebration look like for us? Mary experiences some qualities. She experiences some characteristics that I think are helpful for us. And, and let's, we'll just call these three aspects that come out of a blessing, come out of this particular blessing. And the first aspect that she receives is she receives a new identity, a new identity. In verse 48, it says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. So though the world looks at Mary and would define her along these lines, that she was lowly, 
which means she was poor, that she was oppressed, that she was a woman in a patriarchal culture. That's what that means by being in a humble state. Okay? She now says, forever, I will be thought of otherwise. Forever, I will be known as blessed. That's my identity. That's my character. And while all of those things are also true, there's something more primary there. She's not simply a woman. She's not simply an Israelite. She's not simply Joseph's fiance. She's not simply her parents' children. She's not simply a religious person or an oppressed person. Those are all true about her. But her foundational understanding of herself is that she identifies as one who is blessed from all eternity and will be blessed for all eternity. A powerful understanding of identity. And she's a kid. Kids? Any kids in here? No. Good. I'll just move on. All right. Part of God's blessing is seeing the world's struggles through pride and humility. That's part of what it is to feel and know that blessing. It's now you begin to read the world through that, that kind of identity. And she does that for us. She begins to demonstrate, at least, at least in her thoughts, uh, a new way of looking at the world. And she begins to, to recognize, probably in herself, but also in the world, the struggle that we all have between, with pride and humility. And we see that in verse 50. And we'll leave this on the screen for a little while if we can. Verse 50 says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And what he's, she's hearkening back to is the story of Israel. That he continues to be merciful from generation to generation. He's performed the mighty deeds with his arm. And what is she talking about? The hand of God at work in the world. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Who doesn't know that experience? He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away, sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised to our ancestors. And so what you see there are these themes of pride and humility. And Bonhoeffer, who I referenced earlier, it's out of this particular section where he recognizes that very same tension within his own soul, his own being. And he asks, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? But his answer is this. He says, those who will celebrate correctly are those who finally lay down all their power, all their honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. For whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his loneliness, he is the one who celebrates it correctly. And it reminds me of John the Baptist, who, when being confronted with the ministry, the person of Jesus, and his own ministry, which was thriving, but is now, you know, as he's in prison, maybe is, is, he's imagining its decline, he simply lays it all down. And what does he say? I must decrease so that he might increase. That's the posture of Christmas. That's what humility actually looks like. So not only does the incarnation subvert for her her own understanding of herself and her identity, but it subverts the very power structures of the world. 
and it makes her hungry for more of God. Verse 55 tells us that Mary recognizes that what she has in common with every human being is a kind of hunger that never goes away, and yet in God can be satisfied. And she says, uh, she refers to the hungry, which, you know, the, the spiritual hunger of all human beings, but there are good things out there, she implies, that will bring satisfaction, namely the good things of God. And of course, when we think about Christmas and all the things that we love to do, which are good, they're candy-like compared to what is actually being offered here. Kent Hughes, who's a professor at the seminary I went to, he talks about spiritual hunger and what it is to feed on the good things of God. And he says it works like this. We hunger spiritually and are then filled and become supremely satisfied. The satisfaction that makes way for a deeper spiritual hunger, a further filling and blessed satisfaction. And so it goes on in sublime paradox, hunger, filling, satisfaction, hunger, filling, satisfaction. We become more and more full of Christ as we become more and more like Christ. And of course, we're not going to, uh, that's all about what the Lord's Supper is about, isn't it? It's coming, being filled with this incredible meal experiencing a deep sense of satisfaction, and yet knowing it's not enough. It's not enough. I, I want to feast on him more. He's so good. His things are so good. And so lastly, not just do we experience this new identity and appetite, but fellowship. Mary stayed with Elizabeth, it says, for about three months and then returned home. And this is super brief. I just would like to invite you to imagine the conversation that took place over those three months with those two women who are now pregnant by the hand of God and talking about their past and the future and what's going on with them in the moment, in the present, and to know that God didn't just do something uh, to them as individuals but brought them into a community. And how, what a wonderful three months in some sense that must have been to be able to rejoice in the miraculous work of God together, but also to be reminded that the gift of Christmas is so great that if you don't experience with, it, with an Elizabeth in your life, or a Mary in your life, or a Joseph in your life, you don't experience it in community, we'll never fully get to the bottom of how beautiful this gift actually is. We need one another. For three months, they had a conversation, and then Mary went home. So let's get to the third point. We asked the question, why does she celebrate? We asked, what does it look like? And now, how can we celebrate Christ's coming today? Living into the identity that I just referred to, recognizing our hunger and feasting on the good things of God, having fellowship. But also, I'm going to just borrow some language here. We need to borrow some courage, I think, from Mary. Uh, and not be afraid. Because deep down, what the scriptures teach is that there are two things in all the world that those who are powerful and strong are afraid of. One is the manger. 
The first thing is the manger. We're afraid to gaze in. This is what Bonhoeffer says. He says, for the great and powerful of this world, there are two places in which their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls from which they shy away. The first is the manger. No powerful person dares to approach it, not even King Herod. For this is where thrones shake, where the mighty fall, the prominent perish, because God is with the lowly. Here the rich come to nothing, because God is with the poor and the hungry. But the rich and the satisfied, he sends away empty. Before Mary the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God and lowliness, the powerful come to naught. They have no right, no hope. They're judged. And when we come to the manger, we look at what's there and how the great power of the universe, God himself became so vulnerable and weak. One of the things I love about this church is that there's so many babies around. And they are the perfect metaphor for where we are all spiritually. How vulnerable we are. How weak and dependent we are actually on God. And to see that God actually has set aside his power, set aside his riches to become vulnerable for somebody else is a tremendous threat to us. And when he says it brings about judgment, it's because we feel judged when we look at it. Because we know the tension in our own hearts. But here's the second place that men fear. It's not just the manger, but it's the cross. And to really celebrate the, the power of Christmas is to make sure you make those connections. That the manger and the cross go together, that there's a connection between the two. That by the baby in the manger, we may feel judged by his humility, as I was just saying. Uh, we may feel judged by him, but on the cross, Jesus, knowing not only that we feel judged, but that human, humanity deserves to be judged, came born into the cross, came born into the manger to go to the cross so that he can be judged for us. That's the link. Christmas and the cross, the manger and Calvary. That's the whole point of Christmas. That's why she rejoices in some supernatural way. She worships more than she knows. And she's able to declare in some sense what we know to be the good news. And of course, that's what we can know today. The cross, the good news, means that you and I can experience what Mary experienced in the knowledge that God is saying, you are highly favored. Mary carried the Holy One of Israel. The Bible also teaches that through the new birth, the Spirit of Christ dwells within Christians. That's the gift for us today. So how does that happen? We need to not only receive the Christ of the manger, but the Christ of the cross for us, for you, as God and Savior. And so we see this in a couple places, just so you know, it's not me just spinning a narrative. In Romans 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's been given to us. Or Romans 8, it's if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
And so spiritually speaking, there are similarities between God's work in Mary and in every believer. What are your expectations for Christmas? Whatever it is, if it doesn't make your soul magnify God, perhaps our expectations are too low. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. I thank you, Lord, for who you choose to reveal yourself through. Thank you for Mary. She is indeed blessed. What a powerful figure in the course of human history. Lowly, poor, all of those things, and yet revered for 2,000 years. Lord, I pray that we would know that same blessing and that we would feel uh, the same freedom that she must have felt to be able to move into difficult circumstances to bring you glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.